This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to all Elders, past, present and emerging, and honour their long history, rich cultures and glorious traditions of storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I am your host, Savas Savas. For 25 years, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences to some of Australia's premier events and intimate gatherings. During this time, I've observed the relationships people have with food and devoured thousands of conversations around it. I believe that every memory can be pinned to a food experience and every food experience can trigger a memory. Food memories shape who we are and remind us where we have come from. One of my Melbourne food memories is sitting at the 70-year-old bar at Pellegrini's on Burke Street for the very first time, incandescent with excitement at the Dolce lined up on the back counter. Join me as we move the fork around my guest three food memories to reveal what their memories tell us about them and motivates them to make our world a better place. Each guest will share a social cause close to their heart at the end of the episode. If ever I needed to dispose of a body, my guest today would be the person I'd call to help me bury it. Evie Jones came into television viewing in 2015 on Gogglebox with her then housemate Angie Kent. Evie went on to presenting morning radio on the Nova Network in Melbourne. These days she's a regular panellist on Studio 10 and The Project and has recently reunited with Angie to co-host their own podcast, Two Girls, One Pod. Evie is the original raconteur. Her anecdotal conversation will draw you into the present. It will challenge and unsettle your POV a wee bit before it soothes you with nostalgia, pull you back into the bosom of Abraham, and before (laughs) you know it, your soul is rocked. (laughs) <laughs> Darling Evie, welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. Oh my God, that was amazing. Can you just write intros for me from now on? <laughs> I will. I will. Oh, that was it's so, so good. It's so, I'm actually really fortunate to be sharing a mic with you and your shovel today. How are you? I'm good. I'm so, well, yeah, good. Good enough. Good is, I'm good with you. Tell us about your faithful companion, Angie Kent. I mean, the pair of you are like lipstick, Laurel and Hardy. (laughs) We really are. We really are. Lipstick, Laurel and Hardy with boobs. Yes, yes. Um, Well, what do you want to know? She's great. How did that friendship come to be? We met at um, a promo gig. You know those promo gigs that you used to do when you were trying to be an actor or trying to be anything artistic you go and do promo work like where you'd hand out flyers and things at railway stations and we both um got a a gig for a couple of weeks at Westfield Miranda (laughs) and I was Mrs Claus and she was my elf (laughs) and we just got in trouble all the time because we were so naughty there was all these other elves and her and I just immediately clicked 
and we would just get up into all sorts of mischief. I asked for a microphone, which that wasn't on the brief, but I said, can I get a microphone, you know, just so, you know, and they're like, yes, please. Oh, my God, no one's ever asked for one. And um, I just would sing Christmas carols with with different wordings. And, you know, when you're in the shopping centre, you walk past those things, you know, no one's listening to you. So I would just drop things in. Did you do the big in. eyes? Did you do the singing with the big oh, eyes and the big focus? Absol- and the, absolutely. And the, and the jazzy no one was No one was listening but Angie and she'd just kill herself laughing. Um, and i just constantly end each song with, I'm Mrs Claus and I'm beautiful. And she just thought it was the funniest thing ever. And, and then we you became... Could- then we became best well yeah i mean slowly slowly we would just hang out together and then i convinced her to move in with us when i was living with tom sweetheart let's get our heads into the conversation of your three food memories what's the first one Uh, my first food memory i think i was about seven and I was uh, living in North Balgala, that's where I grew up, and we, me, my mum and my brother and her friends, these were all street people. Not so they weren't street people. <laughs> I, think, I think the word I'm looking for is neighbourhood people. <laughs> Um, no, so we just our neighbourhood friends, um, <laughs> mums and the kids. We all got went down to the Manly um, Wharf and jumped a got a, a ferry over to Circular Quay and then um, a a train down to Haymarket. So we all went to Chinatown. We had this fantastic day, but I can just remember. I don't remember the day very well. I remember like we got to Haymarket, went to Chinatown, went into. I can still remember the restaurant on the corner of Dixon Street where the strip, you know, the foot strip is where there's no cars. And there was, you know, the big round tables. Well, there was a few of the round tables were in booths, but round booths and really high leather seats. Um, And we all got in, like we could all fit. There was about 10 of us, you know, three adults and the rest children. So, we, yeah, we all sat around. And I couldn't believe there was a table on top of a table that was going around. Like we were like, oh, my God, you know, local Chinese (laughs) didn't have this. This is really fancy. There was lanterns everywhere. It was just over the top. And then these pork uh, barbecue pork buns all arrived on the table. I just remember them arriving and looking at them like the little clouds of heaven that they were. Puff, yeah, they were so, and they were steaming. They're white and glutinous. That's, that's, they still are exactly the same as the, the first time I tasted and saw them. These beautiful, perfectly white, like really white fluffs of clouds. I think it looks like cotton wool almost, you know, split open at the top and you could see all the, the insides of the red brown contents, which was, you know, pork, mm, barbecue, no, peking barbecue pork. Oh my God. And I was like, oh, what is this? And it, I already loved my grandmother's dumplings when they were just dumplings, you know, that you dip in gravy, you know, she was Polish, French. So I was thinking, oh, well, I'm I'm going to try this because I loved food, you know, would eat anything. Picked it up, just bit into the white bit and it was sweet and it was light and fluffy and like bread, but a hundred times better. And then I finally got into the barbecue pork part. Oh, 
was like, oh, it's like Augustus Gloop in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory at the at the Chocolate River. I was just eat, drinking, like, you know, they're just gulping it, gulping it until I fell in and went up the chocolate chute. <laughs> Remember when Augustus gets finally finds his when he in the beginning of the movie they show him finding his ticket not finding the ticket but talking to the press about it and he's eating the chocolate is all no no face. this is when he's in back in Bavaria still and his yeah. mum's sitting next to him and all the, the reporters are going how do you feel about finding the fourth um, golden ticket and he goes hungry. <laughs> Related to a character more. <laughs> so back so, to the table. Mm, back to the table, and and all the children, the street people sitting around the table. Yes, street people. Who, yep. So what else was ordered? Do you remember? I don't have no idea. Just tell the fluffy you. pork buns. I don't remember anything else of the day. I don't remember anything but the pork buns, and wanting more. I remember. Eating mine, everyone had one, and wanting another one and being told no. And really, like, really like an addict kind of, I want another one. I want another <laughs> one. Please give me another one. I want another one. Mum goes, no, there's more food. You know, I can't remember, but I remember being very upset that I didn't get to do that again in my mouth. Well, I want to move on to... Mm-hmm. Your second food memory, which is which is steeped in nostalgia. My grandmother, who was born in France um, to Polish parents, she was captured yes. by the Germans and taken to Auschwitz. She, her and her sister were going to the movies and were taken by a truck, like picked up. There was a couple of girls and they were all Saturday afternoon walking down the main street. And Were they Jewish? No, well, that's the thing. They weren't Jewish, but they were rounding people up. Um, in that town because it was a small town out of Paris and they were just rounding and that's what they couldn't they were like but we're not Jewish and they were like well you know we'll uh, have to see about that we're going to process you but it turned out to be because they were all put in cattle trucks uh, trains and three days to um, Auschwitz straight in and then when they came off she said they all came off the ones that survived she said because they were rammed in like cattle and their dysentery went through really fast and people were like dropping you know if you know so if you survived that she said you were really lucky and then they came out and they were all lined up um in a line not in a you know front on line like a line line and they were kind of processing the just looking at them left right kind of thing like if you looked like you could work the german go, soldiers yeah and they would do that and then they lined up she with her and her sister were kind of pushed to the um i guess the healthy side of you know the old people and children were pushed to the on the other side so they were lined up then and told that they weren't staying there in the concentration camp that was not for them she never saw her parents ever again after that but a sister she definitely stayed in contact with because what happened when they were all stood in a line facing everyone was all of these local farmers arrived and the farmers were pointing to everyone and she remembers that memory really vividly because there was a woman and a man that came and they were quite late and she came with a basket of sandwiches 
and my grandmother, they were starving and she was offered them all sandwiches. She couldn't believe it. So she was like, oh, my God. And it was pretty clear that they were taking um, these prisoners as their um, slaves, you know, that they were as workers. They were going to be working on their farms. So she really wanted to go with this woman and man because of the woman bringing the sandwiches. That was a really big memory for her. And... She thought it was so kind Mm. that she'd done that. Um, And she ended up going. She was one of the last ones to be picked because she was so thin and she was only 16. So, you know, they'd chosen all the stockier people first. So, but she, you know, she was there for five years in this farm, living, sleeping in their um, shed. What what do you call this? The stalls. Like she'd sleep with the animals. And it wasn't, they weren't kind at all. Like they would beat her mercilessly every time she did anything wrong but her sister was at another farm close by and the children of the farmers they were all quite sympathetic so they would often send the letters to each other to from you know all the prisoners would write to each other and the children of the farmers were the ones who would you know, relay the let, like send, get the letters and, you know, that kind of thing. So she kept in touch with her sister that way and they would sneak out at night. They all learnt the local area really quickly and because they were like, she was there from 16 to 21. Um, Five she years. would Five years. Yeah, those formative years she was in. I remember her telling me while I was 16, while I was 17, you know, what she was doing at that age. And um, it's amazing, Sava, how much fun they still had like they would sneak out of the stables at night and go to the local church or the local barn or whatever the local hall and they would all meet up all the all the prisoners are all from different countries so she she met my grandfather who was a polish soldier who was captured and he was doing the same thing at another farm and they were they were all worked to the bone but they were alive and they were young and they had, you know, they had like, they were stealing alcohol, they were finding things, they were getting, having a life like as, as good as they could have. So she cooked constantly, my grandmother. She made pierogi and um, sledge, that's the uh, marinated fish. The pierogi is the dumplings, the Polish dumplings. But my, and oh, don't get me wrong, all of these things were my absolute favorite. She did the pumpkin, um, beetroot soups and all the things that everyone would turn their noses up except for us um she would make this chicken noodle soup and it's called rosu in german in um, polish and it was just the simple peasant soup it was done and i don't know why it tasted so good but i do know that she made the noodles herself she would roll out the dough or whatever pasta and she would cut the egg noodles with a knife herself and then she would pick them up and put them in the boiling water and then she'd put them into the soup or she'd put them in another bowl on the table and then she'd never let us serve ourselves she put it all on the table and then she'd serve it to us because that was part of her oh that was she no i'm going to do this for you and and chicken soup is very healing and and very. And, and, and and nurturing it can heal and you from I cold guess- from a flu, from any virus, bacteria, it won't heal you, obviously, but it will help you get on your way. It to- kind of strengthens your bones. It lines your bones, it lines your organs, and you feel like, oh, I've just got a little bit of something to kind of scaffold me up. Exactly. And you know what, talking before about food trends, how big is the bone broth trend? Mm. And that's what chicken soup is. 
She mm. she would make a bone broth from chickens. Um, and it was funny because before she died, when she was really getting quite old, I lived um, below her in Manly and I would beg her to to teach me how to make pierogi and to make all these Polish dishes and she wouldn't, she wouldn't. She would tell me and if I pushed, she'd tell me and she'd tell me something wrong. So one day I had to sit her down <laughs> and say to her, you're going to die and these recipes are going to die with you. So Did you use your face? Did you yeah, use the, all I, those absolutely. expressions? absolutely. <laughs> and I held her hand. <laughs> we have such similar hands. And I said to her, I understand I will never make these bec- instead of you. No one's coming to my chicken soup. That We will still always eat your chicken soup. But when you're gone, I need to know how to carry this on. And that changed everything. That's when she said it's not sugar, it's salt. What do you think? <laughs> Evie, I want to go to school now. I want to go to school now with your third memory. Yes, yes. And I have spoken about this before um, when I was in the jungle in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. And it was very emotional. It is a very emotional memory for me because it involves my mother who has since departed this earth. But she, I mean, my mother wasn't a good cook. (laughs) She wasn't a good cook. My dad isn't a good cook. Like that's why my, I think my grandmother was such a hit in our household. But, but um, your parents, you're just 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 for a second mm. there. Your parents fostered or not f- f- took on took on people, yep. children. Yep. yep. Right. So how did they fit? Like what? Like how did they nurture them apart from giving them a roof over their heads if they weren't good cooks? What was they weren't good cooks, but they could cook. You know, chops and three veg. And because it was always boys that we took in, in bulk. So, you know, lots of, like, you know, when you go to the local RSL and like we would win meat trays all the time, you know, you'd see a meat tray. That was a normal purchase for us. Huge meat. meat. Well, (laughs) we were the Shedletskis. The Shedletskis? Yeah, my father's name is Shedletsky. Evie Shedletsky. Yvette Shedletsky is the name. And that was my grandmother's name. Well, because it was my grandmother's name. And ah. it never felt mine. Like it was always hers. And once, um, did, just quickly, did your grandmother wear a scarf on her head? Like you sometimes, yeah. Is that sometimes. where you get it from? No, I got started wearing scarves on my heads in in my late twenties because I got um, alopecia. Like I had lumps ah. of of bald spots on my head, so I had to get very creative with uh, headwear, and I didn't like hats. So anyway, sorry. Back to the back to the family. Back to the family. Um, Yeah, so my mum and dad couldn't cook great, but they could do sausages, mince, pork chops, you know, steaks, all that kind of thing, and lots and lots of steamed veggies, lots and lots of, you know, peas cooked in the microwave in water, that kind of thing. Like it was always a very bland dinner, but it was always very nutritious and (laughs) every single dinner involved two litres of the green death, we called it, the cooler, cordial. (laughs) How many many people would be, how many children would there be at the table at its height? Well, around when I was about 14 was when we started bringing in. My brother and my father played um, baseball and my brother at school. So it it was always boys and boys who just were having a rough time at home um they would just be invited over 
and you stay for as long as you want. And they would. They would stay. They would end up living with us. What, what was the motivator for them doing that? Well, my mother grew up like that. My mother was um, – well, she was one of eight children but one of three for that marriage. And yeah. her um, sister's best friend came to live with them. And it just was a thing that she grew up with. So she was like, if my children have friends that have any kind of problems, our house is open. They were just that kind of people, my parents. Did they, they get just, government support for no, doing any of that? Nothing. It was all unofficial, completely unofficial. It's, it's, it was just mm. truly a community, it takes a village kind of attitude that my parents had and everyone knew it, you know, and it, it, we had a big house. We didn't start with a big house, but my dad was a builder, so he'd just keep building <laughs> things, you know, as we needed. But we didn't need them. My brother had four guys in his room at one point and mum and, and dad put their bed in the lounge room. My parents slept in the lounge room for a decade. Like we lived in this box of a house and we were the happiest we've ever been. Like we were just all, you know, there was a lot of laughter in our, at, at our dinner tables. So anyway, let's get on to that, that lunch oh, box yeah. memory. So my, grand, my mother, she would make me lunches. and Would they she make would, lunches for all the other children as well? Yep. Or just you? Yep, no, everyone. Jesus, but where this was the more, finance, to, the funds, well, that's, the feed? See, that's the thing. You had to buy everything in bulk. And jewels, you know. should go to jewels. <laughs> oh my god, no, we used to get like the bread man would come. And I remember on a Tuesday, I think on a Tuesday, maybe another day, but definitely every Tuesday, I'd come home from school and open up the electricity box and grab the three loaves of bread that, that was delivered, and that would be gone like that. And the rest of the time, we just kind of have to purchase bread, but there would always be a delivery of bread. So we ate a lot of white bread. So my mother would make me. Um, sandwiches for school and my favorite fresh sandwiches just to eat when she'd make them and I'd put them straight in my mouth would be ham tomato and cheese on white bread mm, beautiful so she would make them for me for school put them in the lunchbox by the time lunch rolled around you'd open up your lunchbox unwrap the, the cling wrap and the tomato had bled all through uh. and so I'd just end up with play-doh sandwiches <laughs> basically and everyone used to give me a hard time. Like, Ew, what are you eating? That is so gross. <laughs> and I would just eat them because my mother had made them and her hands had been on them. And I was in love with my mother. Like till the day she died, I was enamored with my mother. I wanted to be her, wanted, loved everything about her. Started smoking because of her, did everything, spoke. I still, like people see things on Facebook and they go that know my mother. And they'll go, oh, my God, you are just the spitting image. Evie, what, so what was the relationship like with mother against the backdrop of all these people? She would always make time for me. We would talk every night in my bedroom alone. Um, we, I, had, I was a very emotional teenager, so she used to sit with me a lot while I'd be crying. And, you know, I was a fat teenager, so I, I, I had a lot of bullying. Not bullying going on at school, but a lot of rejection and that kind of thing. Um, Where was the rejection coming from? Oh, mostly boys. Mostly boys that I fancied. Um, you know, cool girls at school. Everyone liked me. I was a really liked person at school because I was funny and I had a personality. 
I was very popular in that jovial sense that I was a real, you know, clown and um, very entertaining. Did the relationship change after her diagnosis? Well, I um, went home after she told me and um, called everyone that I could because I was living as a carer at the time and a foster carer for dogs. Um, I had a really great other friend living in the house at the time but I I called on everyone that I'd ever done favors for or had anything to do with my situation in the house and I said this is what's happened and my mother hasn't got very long to live so I'm going up there and I need you all to take over and they did they just everyone just turned up they just turned up they did what they had to do they you know uh, sorted it out between themselves I went up to mum and dad's and um, stayed until the moment she died and then the next day the um she died on the 23rd of december so on christmas eve the morgue people came to take her away and i left straight away went back home and slept for the next two days if you could have one more conversation and i'm so sorry if this is painful if you could have one more conversation with her what would it be oh if It would be how if I'm still making her proud because she was so proud of me, and you we know all when, are proud of you. Yeah, really. and you know what? I you saw are. a I saw a psychic really recently who said, when your mum died, you were just becoming uh, well known, and I said, yeah. And she said, your mum is making all the things that are happening for you now. She said every job that you get, it's your mum doing it ethereally because she couldn't do anything when she was alive and she knew that. But this is her opening doors. She just keeps every job opportunity that comes your way is because of her. Because she died just before I left Gogglebox and after I left Gogglebox, everything went boom. And this psychic was really adamant about that. Hey, Evie, just on that, of course mum knows what's going on and of course she's desperately proud of you because every single door that she opens for you we benefit we're your family we're your friends we're your audience we benefit from that oh thank you we need people like you can you tell us about um your social cause and why but mine is the Butterfly Foundation and I've had disordered eating most of my life because, you know, I had a weight problem um, that started as a teenager through puberty and everything. Um, but, you know, the, the world that we live in when you have a fat body that you're born, you know, into and it's genetic, um, you're told there's something wrong with you from the moment you step out well before you even step out the door you know your own family will be telling you that it's unacceptable to have that kind of a body so you start to disorder your eating to um counter that and which turns out to be a dreadful decision to make um and the butterfly foundation i think is well when i was on the jungle they did the weigh-in and i did a a bit of a speech that became quite popular and the Butterfly Foundation, I, I did a speech about um, saying I won't, I refused to be weighed in. Like every season they would weigh in the um, celebrities and they would show their, fur, their weight when they walked into the camp and then they show their weight, you know, then. And then the audience could see how drastically 
they'd lost all this weight and that was And why did you decide not to? I've decided years ago to never get on scales ever again because they don't matter. Unless you're going under anaesthetic, it really, it is just a great trigger for anyone who has an eating disorder. It is one of the biggest triggers for you to see weight on a scale. Um, You can get obsessed. You do. You become obsessed with them. It would ruin your entire day, your entire week, your entire month. It ruins everything. It's just awful. I didn't know how much I weighed and I... When we arrived, they had a big uh, blackboard where they had all of our names and all of our before weights. So my weight was up there in front of me and I didn't even know how much I weighed. But all I know was I was in three digits and everyone else was only in two because we were down to the last seven celebrities by this point. And it was like a beacon flashing and all of the feelings and all of the anger and all of the shame and all of the things that you feel and 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 then all of the f- treatment started to come up as well all of the therapy that i've had over that kind of thing was you're fine you're proud of who you are that is a number there is nothing to be ashamed about but it just slowly got me and it, it as we're talking because you know you have to do these take after take angie was reading out the um the intro for the the task and they kept saying to her, oh can we get another take on that can we get another one and i'm starting to break and the tears that just naturally started to come for me came and they didn't stop and that's when i decided in within myself that when it got to my time to go up and get on the scales i wasn't not only going to not do it but I was going to say why and why it was so incredibly important, not just for me, but for every fat-bodied person that has been uh, discriminated against simply because of the way they look. And how does the Butterfly Foundation help people, boys, g- girls and boys, you know, men and women, how do they help to combat well, this? Education. I mean, they're leading the way in understanding disordered eating. Why? how damaging it is, how infiltrated it is in our society and how incredibly dangerous it is and how easily it's accepted and encouraged, supported. Evie, I'm dedicating this episode to your grandmother and to all the grandmothers out there who um, made us who we are, who made us speak from our hearts and act from our hearts we are so lucky to have you like and i am probably saying this more as a as a dear friend than i am mm. um an audience member um but anyone who knows you as well as i do and and better we're so proud of you we are so thank proud you. of you thank and, you and, so and, much and you and just keep going and we'll just keep susan opening those doors oh. and, so we can see more of you um and i'm really 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 grateful um for your time and your openness well we love you evie and thank Thank you you. so much for having me on i've really really enjoyed doing this thank you so much for listening to plated three food memories if you enjoyed this episode please tell your friends about it online or in person you can also subscribe rate it and write a review bye for now